Welcome to Future Work, the podcast where we bring you practical tips and insights on the ever-evolving landscape of work. Join us as we explore the trends, innovations, and challenges shaping the way we work today and tomorrow. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to our Future Work podcast. We're here today with Chris Dyer, a keynote speaker and author on the topic of company culture and remote work. Welcome, Chris. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Chris, this is so great to have you here. We did a webinar sometime last year, and then since I've been following you on LinkedIn, but most importantly on TikTok. And uh, what is your TikTok handle for people to follow along? Oh, geez. Yeah, I think it's chrisdyer.com, actually. Wonderful. And we'll definitely include it in the show notes as well. So Chris, you've been researching and writing about and speaking about the topic of company culture, the topic of remote work, the future of work generally. There was some research released recently by Nick Bloom, I think another really big work from home researcher from Stanford University that showed that while maybe not every company in the world is remote yet or hybrid yet, almost every company has at least some remote or hybrid employees. And so that kind of begs the question, if almost every company has at least some hybrid employees, how do companies deal with this? What's the way to run a company in this day and age? So I think to set the tone, we have had hybrid work and remote work for a very long time. And it's just that COVID democratized this experience for employees. So companies always had sales teams and trainers and technical people that had to go to their clients or go on site or go do these different things. And so they had to figure that out. They had to do that thing with that employee who was hybrid, who was in the office sometimes, who was, you know, in the office, maybe never, maybe you might not ever see that outside salesperson except at the all staff or the company holiday party or whatever. So this is not new for employees and some groups. It's just that now we have realized that companies were forced to do it. So they realize I really can manage these people. It's so simple to say, is this salesperson meeting their quota? I don't care what they're doing with their time. I don't care. You know, they either meet the number or they don't, but that's not the metric we use for a customer service agent or a technical person or whatever, you know, so suddenly employees, but we don't know how to manage them. What do we do? They had to like figure it out. And that was what we spent a lot of time, you know, during COVID and after I spent a lot of time helping companies. What are those metrics and how do you decide what's good, what's bad, what needs to be worked on and all of that? So I think it's just expanded the conversation, if that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. We definitely have a much broader conversation. And again, including a lot of companies that were never built from the ground up for remote, never were built for hybrid. And I think everyone is trying to figure it out as we go along. I thought you mentioned something really interesting there about salespeople are very easy to measure their performance, right? You know, whether they made the appropriate amount of outbound calls, you know, whether they contributed enough revenue as per plan, we could say the same for engineers. So I see that like within IT companies, engineering companies, typically the transition to hybrid work wasn't that difficult because they were quite used to thinking about what needs to be built, what are the story points, how do we then track whether people deliver on that or not. But then to your point, there are so many people where companies don't know how to measure it. What are some steps that companies could take towards solving that problem so that we kind of go away from this, uh, as Microsoft calls it, productivity paranoia, where just because we don't see people, we sort of assume that they're not working. Yeah. 
is really a varied response or varied approach. Every company in every position. And I'll tell you, one of the hardest people to figure this out for is actually managers, mid-level managers. Because how do you measure that? Like they're managing people, they're on call. How do you determine, you know, is it their staff's, you know, like survey results or, you know, so it can get really tough. I suggest that they look at what is, are there metrics that they can put towards that person that makes sense? If there is, that should be a part of that. Certainly their manager's sort of opinion of their performance and their productivity or their, how they are on the team is a part of it. But sometimes you can't, like you just can't look at someone and say these two metrics and this thing equals they did a good job because they are impacting the organization in such a soft and sort of generalized way, right? And every once in a while, maybe a client calls and says, wow, that's, that Susie, you really did great for me. But like, you know, oh, do you give them a raise because of that? Do you like, does that mean all of a sudden they're good? And if they didn't get one this year, they're bad. So often what I have done with those groups of people is we set team goals and we look at the the team holistically and we say, is did the team meet their goals and mix that with some bit of manager, you know, review and all of that. And that's how we determine it. You know, if it's too squishy, if it's too hard to like say that person, they did these specific things, can we look at the team goals? And if the team goals are met and doing great, then we leave them alone. Mm-hmm. And if the team goals aren't being met and the team is failing, then we can get in there and start micromanaging and start uh, micromanaging, start picking at what's happening and really then worry about productivity. Absolutely. Yeah. Now that's super interesting to think about the team as a unit and what they are supposed to deliver. If a company doesn't know what individual teams are supposed to deliver, then probably there's a bigger problem altogether, right? right? Because at least at a team level, you need to kind of understand what are we here for? What work would contribute meaningfully to the company's goals and the company's mission? Um, And therefore, that's something that you can measure. The topic of teams obviously also raises another question which is maybe a little bit on the softer side, maybe let's move away a little bit from the metrics. And I think another area where you're doing a lot of research, how do you build teams? And maybe linked to that, how do you maintain teams? But how do you build teams in a world where we're not sitting side by side, nine to five, five days a week? That's a big challenge for a lot of companies right now. Well, it depends on what, you know, the different metrics of that team. So if you're talking about how do I build a team where people are in the same time zone, that's going to be a lot different answer than how do I build a team who's in working asynchronously across seven or eight time zones, right? I mean, if you and I were on a team, we have probably about two hours a day, we might be able to have a Zoom call. Otherwise, we're going to be working async, right? It really does take that custom approach. But, you know, aside from that, we have to really make sure that we get everyone to agree on what a success looks like. What are the goals that we're trying to accomplish? Who is specifically in charge of what? How much autonomy, where do we give them autonomy? Where are they allowed to make and be explicit? Don't just assume, we have to be a leader explicit about what areas they have autonomy to make decisions, to think on their own, get things done. They might need to let us know. We might need to make adjustments if they need to make right decisions. But we want to remove barriers, remove needless sort of approvals and things like that. People can get things done and be very explicit about where we need them to come to us 
or come to the team for help or permission. You know, so what do those boundaries look like? Be in super explicit because that's often great teams. They understand at a very deep level how to get work done. What am I allowed to do? What am I not allowed to do? What takes approval? What doesn't take approval? And then you energize them uh, with good leadership to move forward and go get things done. Bad teams typically don't understand. It's it's like a mystery to them about what we're supposed to be doing and when am I supposed to go to my boss and when am I supposed to go to my boss? And can I go to the teammates for that? And they're walking around trying to get work done, like literally with the lights off, right? Because they haven't been for the rules. Mm, super interesting. Immediately went to when we're talking about team building, we're talking about all the soft and squishy stuff, or we're talking about running some fun activity and this and that. But actually, you're saying that there's also a lot of importance there to actually start with the work, because at the end of the day, that's why we show up in the first place. And do I know what's expected of me? And can I be yeah. a good part of this team? And maybe that's actually a much better starting point than starting from um, running fun activities and doing icebreakers. Then within that, obviously, there's a big role for the manager. So I think a lot of the conversations always come back down to the manager. How does someone manage that? And I think we're running a lot into first-time managers that making that transition from an individual contributor to a manager. They have to figure out how to manage. But again, now suddenly they're in a context where they cannot sort of like rely on the office as a crutch of seeing people constantly and being able to give feedback on the spot and course correcting in real time. You know, are there some management principles that managers can use when they're managing these kind of hybrid teams? Sure. So again, being explicit with people on how they get the answers to their questions. Is that always in Slack? Is that always on email? So we used to do these uh, meetings and I've, I've taught this to hundreds of companies, something called a cockroach meeting. And so the, how we explain this to the employees, is if you had a cockroach in your bathroom, it's a small problem. You may not want to be the one who cleans it up but it's a single small issue. And so you would quickly maybe run downstairs and tell everyone there's a cockroach in the bathroom. Could someone come help me catch this thing and get it out of here, right? As opposed to we have this other meeting called a tiger team meeting because imagine what happens if you get a tiger in your bathroom. That's a totally different reaction, right? So at the cockroach meeting, we told people, you are allowed to call the meeting. Any person can call the meeting. You can invite anybody you want. We suggest five to seven people. It is totally optional, though. If you are invited to a cockroach meeting, it's totally optional for you to show up. So if I invite you when, you know, it's morning time for me, but you're just sitting down for dinner with your family, you don't have to feel any pressure to show up. But maybe if you happen to be sitting on the train and you're like, oh, I can pop in this meeting for really quick. I could help this person out. You could do it, right? And the meeting is no more than 15 minutes long. We always strive for it to be less time. Our average cockroach meetings were seven or eight minutes. There is no how's it going, no icebreakers, no what's the weather like. It is, here's my problem. And everyone says, this is how you solve it, or this is who you need to talk to. And you go, great. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Done. Creating that empowering type of a solution allowed employees to deal with their issues, deal with their problems, and let the team help them, let the company and the team help them, and not have to wait until they get their boss on the phone or wait until they have a weekly meeting with their team. Or the worst is go around and calling every teammate one at a time or slacking them one at a time and trying to get a question answered. And now they're bogging down the entire organization. 
and they're not getting any work done, or they're spending three hours Googling the problem when they could have just asked, hey, can anyone pop on a quick call with me at one? I don't know how to do a pivot table. Does it, who knows how to do a pivot table in Excel? Three people show up. Oh, I know how to do a pivot table. Let me show you. And they quickly show them how to do it. And here's the cool video you might be able to use. Okay, thanks, everyone. Bye. Off the phone. Mm. We, in 15 minutes or less, we just saved the organization 20 hours because you probably had them bugging people one at a time, bouncing around the organization, being in all these meetings. Mm. And that's how we create efficiencies and how we create opportunities for people to get things done. So if the managers can empower their people with the strategies and the ways in which they can get things done, that's really big. Making sure that they have the right cadence for check-ins. And the system, I mean, I love something like, depends on what your organization does, but utilizing Scrum or Agile or Kaizen, those types of things, those naturally have these built-in meetings. But if you're not doing that, if you're like, hey, I'm just a regular manager who's got five customer service employees and we don't have a system or whatever, go read some leadership books. But, you know, it's ask your people what they need, give them clear direction, give them clear, this is how we get things done. This is where you could go to get help. This is how I want you to ask for help and keep talking about it. Yeah, I, I love that. I think the very practical approach towards solving problems is very powerful because what we hear a lot is that people feel too big of a barrier to reach out, to ask small questions, and then they either start lingering or they start festering to your point. Maybe the one cockroach turns into like a whole army. Yeah. And the reason why that barrier seems to be there is because when you're sitting in an office side by side, it's very easy to see if someone would be receptive to you asking a quick question. You can see whether they're in deep focus mode or whether they're in another conversation. You don't want to bug them. It, but if you see that they're just kind of answering emails or doing small work, you don't mind that much stepping up to them and asking the question. Now that we're remote, we don't have any context. We don't have any visibility I've, into what people are up to. So can I really bother them with this question? And I think that's something that we hear a lot. So the manager's role then being the one to say, no, actually, I want you to reach out and here's a format in how to do that. And if you don't do it, then here's a cadence of other meetings in which we'll touch base and which you'll have the opportunity to ask those questions. I think that can be very, very powerful. Any other tips and tricks on, I think we're going to learn a lot from you in terms of just practically you know, how to communicate better, how to collaborate better in these in these remote contexts? Well, a lot of times in these little questions that come up, the leader, you know, if they hear about it, or maybe if a team member, you know, identifies it, it's great to create a, a loom or a vidyard and do a little mini, usually 99% of the time, when someone has a question and runs into a problem, it is not the first time that that's come up and it's not the last right? Rarely do new, brand new, original problems just suddenly show up. And when they do it, it usually lands on the manager's desk anyways. So create that content, take that extra second right then just to go create a quick, here's how someone asked this question. Here's how you solve this problem. Here's where you go with our software. This is what you do or you talk to IT or whatever. And the next time it comes up, someone can literally grab that link to that video, right? And go here, this is how you do it. We don't have to have meet. We don't even have to talk. I can solve your problem by doing this. So we've created big, in organizations, we've created like FAQs, internal FAQs, created and slapped videos next to them. And it takes time 
But usually in about six months, they have so many videos, so much repositories that now employees shift from, hey, who can help me to, oh, I actually have a place to go and I can look up this question. I do think that is what one of the ways in which ChatGPT and AI is really going to start helping organizations is to just maybe start looking at their emails or start transcribing their calls and start creating an FAQ system out of that, right? Like employees don't even have to stop what they're doing to write it down. AI will maybe just naturally go, geez, I keep hearing in meetings that people don't know how to to get their password for this issue and just create that FAQ. So that, I think that's really important. Yeah, I love that idea that this is probably happening anyway, because even if you think about a simple Slack exchange or a Teams exchange about a specific issue that someone runs into, a coworker who's been there before basically tells them, well, here's how to do it. Maybe here's a link to a resource or here's a link to a video. That is all happening already. So if there's a smarter way to maybe tap into AI to then compile that into an FAQ so that also for the next person that they can find the answer to that question, I think that makes a lot of sense. Generally, this idea that you just kind of post about, this is not the first time this problem has come up. That's obviously the old way of doing and the old way of thinking is very much that like I step into a role, I'm managed by someone who's done that role before me. And they will cascade down. Oh, I remember two years ago when I took on that role. Okay. Here's how I did that. You take some of that knowledge, then you put some of your own kind of spin on it. And that then becomes your way of working that you then pass on to the next person, which is very linear. Mm -hmm. But this kind of knowledge base and this kind of, you know, inventory of all the answers to all the questions and challenges means that you can distribute the work much better. And so as organizations start to think about, you know, maybe not just hiring a few people under a manager, but also tapping into gig workers and skill marketplaces, whether it's internal or external, that really then helps build that organization of the future. I think that's very interesting. Yeah. So we used to like know for training, people always need to be trained on certain things. They would always have certain questions. And we created like folders and really made it organized so employees could go in on their own speed. We also found that even though employees enjoy asking fellow employees and having that time to connect and to, you know, be human, when we sent them a video, they would watch it an average of 15 times. And we were like, why is this happening? Why are people watching the video 15 times? And the answer was twofold. One, they could watch it at their own speed and actually really understand. They were telling us they understood and they didn't really understand. And so when they got the video, they could keep rewatching it. And they were like, oh, now I'm getting deep learning, deep understanding, because I'm watching somebody do it. And then what would happen is a few days would go by and they would forget some of it. And they would go back and watch the video a few more times again. And it cut down on the amount of time that our key staff and our managers had to spend training new people. Yeah. Because... Your A players tend to get called into all these trainings because they're the ones who know how to do it best. But now you're sucking all of the, the juice out of them for the wrong thing because they should be doing the work, not doing all the training. And the managers get bogged down in those situations. We also created sort of a little, an automation. We think about like marketing automations for sales and things like that. We created employee automations. So when they would start on day one, we had a, an intro email that went out. And once we put them in that automation, it would welcome them and tell them what they should think about for today. And day two, they would get another message from their bot that was automated, right? Or from HR or whatever. And like, hey, here's what you should know about Slack. 
be day three. Here's a cool thing you can do in Slack, or maybe this is what you need to know about this. And we just slowly, day by day, maybe sometimes a couple times a day, they get an email, but we could automate that process. We knew the things they needed to learn over a period of time. We knew the things they needed to be introduced to, to create, to help them get integrated into our company. And we didn't leave it to chance and we didn't leave it to their each individual manager to do it in their, as you said, their own way. We created it the way we wanted it to be done and we automated it so it was consistent and persistent for every employee. It makes so, so much sense. We were joking early on about TikTok, but when you think about especially younger generations and how they come into the workforce and their kind of organic media consuming habits, that idea of watching a video and watching it 10, 15 times is so much more natural towards how they already consume not only content, but knowledge, how they learn is through 15, 30 second little videos in which there's one little thing that you talk about, for example, company culture or three tips for positive leadership. That's how I learn. And maybe I bookmark that video and go back to it when the situation arises where I actually have to apply it. Right. And that's so much more logical. And again, the barrier is so much lower to getting that instruction maybe up to 10 times then constantly having to go back to your manager and say, oh, I'm so sorry. I know I said I understood it, but actually I didn't really get it. Can you explain one more time? Because at some point you're just not going to ask anymore. And for some people that, yep. that tolerance will be very low. So maybe they will only ask once or twice if that. And then you end up getting people who are spinning their wheels, who are doing a lot of work that doesn't really contribute to anything because maybe they went down the wrong path. And so these like little micro tips almost, like these little like small practices, they can really help solve what become really big problems for a company at a very granular level. And I also really like that idea of the automation because we live in a day and age again where so much can be automated and in everything besides work, so much is automated and data-driven and personalized like that drip email idea. But somehow when it comes to the workplace, it's still very much like one size fits all and everyone gets the same mm -hmm. experience and everyone gets the same onboarding and it doesn't make sense at all. And we're wasting a lot of time. I think this was super helpful. Um, we'll definitely put the link to all your social media accounts, your website, your books uh, in the show notes so that people can learn from the expert. So maybe just one question to end, which is if there's just one single thing that you could get across. Tim Ferriss always talks about the billboard. If there's one message, one piece of knowledge that you could get across to the world, what would it be? Wow, one thing to get across to the world. I, I really wish people knew that they just have to try to be able to accomplish something. So many people will say to me, I can't believe that you've done this or that you've written this book or whatever. And, and I'm like, I just tried. I'm not, you know, it wasn't because I'm, go ask my teachers. None of them would have told you I was going to be a writer, right? They would laugh at you, you know, if you would ask them that when I was in school. That was not, not my jam. But I went and wrote books. So you just have to trust. And taking that first step and being brave enough to be okay that you might fail and you might, I've literally tried a thousand things that did not work out. But for some reason, I don't have a problem trying but I'm always fascinated by how many people around me are so afraid to just try something outside their comfort zone or outside of what is the normal thing you're supposed to do in society. Right? So let's go get a nine to five job, or whatever. Yeah. Just go try the thing. That's what I think. I think that world would be a lot better. A lot of people who were out there 
trying to do something else that makes them happy, makes them more money, helps their family, I don't know, helps society, whatever. Just to go out there and try. Beautiful, beautiful. And what is there to lose? I love that idea. Okay, everyone. So you've heard it from Chris, from the experts. Just go and try. And then hopefully you will become as successful as him one day. Thanks, Chris, so much for joining us today. And uh, again, we'll post all the links to all your accounts in the show notes. People definitely go and check out Chris for much more advice and much more insights. Um, and thanks for listening today. Thanks for having me.